Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thanks for the opportunity to say uh, a, a few words. Um, I think most of the time is for discussion and questions, isn't it? So I will promise not to go on for too long, but there are one or two framing remarks I'd like to make. There's kind of um, three topics I'd like to cover, and I think there is a bit of a connection, a logical thread among them. So the, the first is really the scale of the challenge in, in uh, tackling climate change. Um, my thoughts about the scale of the challenge lead on to, therefore, what's the nature of the research work that needs to be done? And then, on the basis of the written nature of the research work that needs to be done, so what are the, what's the collaboration that's, that's required in order to deliver that? Not just, I think, between industry and uh, academia, but there are other parties involved as well. So those are my three chunks. And I hope that's okay, because I haven't got a plan B. Um, so the, the first one about um, the scale of the challenge, I, I, I think the point I want to make is that actually this is a gigantic challenge, and I think it's slightly provocative that the solution to climate change doesn't lie on our rooftops on our, or our village greens, I believe at least that it lies in very large scale engineering. Uh, and let me explain why I think that. First of all, this is an order of magnitude change that we require, so we have to decarbonize the global economy by a factor of 10 in the first half of this century, and the UK economy as well by a factor of 10. A slightly different factor of 10. Globally, the economy will probably be five times the size over the first half of the century, and as you know, it's half the emissions. In the UK, it's maybe only double the economy, but it's a fifth of the emissions. But in either case, it's a, a tenth of the carbon intensity that you require. And those of you good at doing mental arithmetic on exponents will immediately work out that if over 50 years, you're going to have a an impact of an order of magnitude, you need to change by 7% a year. So we need to decarbonize the economy by 7% a year, which is a lot faster than has been happening relatively naturally because of a greater move to services and things like gas replacing coal. And of course, the longer we leave it to get going on that trajectory, then the steeper the ultimate curve uh, becomes. And the greater the risk is that we get to the trillionth ton of carbon, uh, which is the ton of carbon that sort of irreversibly gets us over two, two and a half degrees or so. And at the moment it looks as if it's in the mid-2040s that we get to the trillionth ton, and it looks quite difficult to see how we can avoid that. Um, and you can imagine a, an order of magnitude is about a third of a third, so we need to get a unit of economic output for a third of the energy input of today, and a unit of energy for a third of the carbon emissions of today, and if we can do that, then we can solve at least the arithmetic of climate change and deliver that order of magnitude uh, change. But it, it's a gigantic task. And actually, um, I don't think we're able to do it without carbon negative technologies. And that's my belief. But again, we can discuss that as well, although the chair will probably rule it out of order as being not quite within the scope of the, well, it's part of the, part of the discussion. Um, and the other thing that makes it difficult, by the way, I do think we can solve this, so this may all sound very despairing, or maybe it sounds like the plea for fossil fuels, which is not meant to be. Um, but, so I do think we can solve it, it's just if we're real to ourselves about what the problem is, we're more likely to get it solved. And the next part of the problem, I think, is a problem of energy densities. Um, and the energy density of fossilized solar energy is phenomenally large compared to the energy density of current solar energy. Um, and if I just give you one example of that, you'd have to raise a ton of water 10 miles high in order for it to acquire the potential energy available from a chemical bonds and a gallon of petrol. 
So geological time has bequeathed us phenomenally energy-dense packages, small in volume, small in mass, compared to the solar energy hitting the Earth, which is huge in aggregate, of course, but very low in density. Um, and that fact, and of course, we've built our modern society over the last hundred or more years on this phenomenal energy density of fossil fuels. So actually, kicking the fossil fuel habit is going to be quite hard because we're going to have to replicate somehow that energy density or that energy force in the, into the focus it into where we've uh, decided we need that focus and built it into our modern life. So the task of harvesting that, concentrating and delivering it where we, where we need is inevitably going to require large-scale engineering. Um, and there's someone from Shell here, at least in my experience at Shell, who went through the work. We got very excited in the test tube and then a bit demoralized as we began to think about how we scale these things up to, to deliver meaningful volumes of, of energy from essentially topical solar, uh, solar uh, energy. Um, and the third point is the time frames on this. I, I remember uh, a government minister saying to me, we need a Google energy company. And I know that Google said to themselves, we're great innovation, we'll take our best stars and we'll go into energy, we did it for software. Um, they began to discover that this is actually physical engineering, it's not software engineering. Software engineering is rapid cycle and so are domestic appliances and things like that. It actually takes about 30 years for a new energy technology to have an impact on the global system. 10 years in the lab, 10 years scaling it up a bit, 10 years to get to any significant level of deployment. It would be nice if we could break that rule, but it does seem to be a rule that applied for fossil fuels and it seems to be applying for solar and wind and things like that. It seems to be running through. So those are the uh, in my so perspectives on, the, on this challenge. I do think because of all of that we will need negative carbon and for that whatever else we do I think carbon capture and storage is absolutely vital. But I say again, although this might have sounded a little bit like a doctrine of despair, it wasn't meant to be. Actually we know how to solve this. I mean this isn't a problem of lack of technology. It, the, the problem is our will to deploy that technology, nor is it actually an economic problem in the long run as you know. because. Uh, the damage, which is, and we should remind ourselves that climate change isn't really about temperature, it's about floods and droughts. And if we could remind ourselves of that and remind the public of that, we might get more support for, for action. Um, but the cost of those floods and droughts and other things uh, outweighs the cost of the changes we need to make to the energy system in order to avoid it. So the cost-benefit equation, as demonstrated by Lord Stern of this great institution, uh, it argues for, for action. So this problem is soluble. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a point about actually getting it solved. Um, which brings me to the next point, and that's about academic research, and I'll try and explain a little bit about why I was saying what I was saying the last few, few minutes. So I think it's not just technology that's required for academic research. There are some other things as well, and also the integration among those other things, uh, the totality of it's really important too. But one is there is a great deal of work that's needed to be done on science and technology and engineering. And because of what I'm describing, I suggest there need to be horizons for that. Um, so there's a sort of horizon. So what are we going to do over the next 20 years? And it's pretty clear to me, at least, that the technologies that are going to be relevant over the next 20 years are technologies we already know, know about. They're big and un ugly and unsatisfactory. Uh, and I suspect if we took a poll around this room, I'd find a good number of people who hate nuclear a good number of people who think that wind is crazy and a good number of people who think that CCS will never work. So we would collectively rule out the available solutions to us over the next 20 years and fail even more. So we've got to not be too 
Chrissy about it and accept that you know, this is messy and it's not long term, it's not going to work very well, but actually it can work and it's, it's the stuff that can make a difference. So actually CCS, for example, and, and offshore wind seem to be two good examples of where we really need to get, get going and, and uh, put demonstration project money in and get ourselves down the learning curve, which involves a great deal of technological development in order to reduce the costs. Then there's another phase. So what are we doing in the 2030s and the 2040s? Concentrated solar power, for example, I think might be one of those. I would rather hope that battery technologies for cars, cars will be getting better by that point. And then there's another phase. So what are we doing after 2050? And of course, we know less well uh, what it's going to be, but yeah, fusion uh, might be there. Maybe microbial routes to, to biofuels. And of course, what's relevant then will depend partly on what works well in the meantime, because it might mean we need more of something. It might mean that something we thought we'd do, we don't need to do, uh, because other things will work. And I say that because option management is really important. And if I can give a, a slight example of an option management, you can take transport or car transport. Clearly, that's a huge source of carbon dioxide emissions, and we have to mitigate that. But actually, the internal combustion engine is going to be supreme for another 15 or 20 years. So we really need to do a lot to reduce the emissions, improve the efficiency of cars and the internal combustion engine. I saw some work the other day that it looks like Delphi, who used to be the Ford company for parts, have come up with a compression ignition solution to gasoline cars, which would improve their efficiency by 50%. Not that it's a slam dunk and a shoe in for tomorrow. I guess what I'm saying is, although longer term it can't work, we really have to work hard on the efficiency of vehicles. And then options like, well, will it be batteries? Will it be hydrogen? Uh, will it be fuel cells? To what extent um, can microbial routes to biofuels work? We've got to sort of place options on all of those things because we can't be sure uh, what really is going to work. And by the way, I better say energy efficiency because you're probably thinking, hang on a minute, this thesis falls down because we really need energy efficiency and to get energy efficiency, some of the things I said aren't true. Actually, um, energy efficiency isn't needed just to avoid carbon emission. Uh, carbon emissions. Uh, in the work that Shell was doing on scenarios, if you don't get enough energy efficiency, you get economic dislocation because energy demand outstrips supply. So energy efficiency is crucial to avoiding huge volatility in energy prices, uh, I, I believe. So there's a huge strand of technological development. I think, though, one that's really important and perhaps uh, underdone is behavioral science. I mean, I mean I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. I'm, I'm a rampant, voracious consumer. You know, I got here through natural selection processes by learning to be very good at consuming. Uh, and also, within my social group, I kind of need status to help my survival, and status involves having a V8 Range Rover, it would appear. So I'm driven by some fairly deep and visceral Darwinian instincts that I want stuff, and I want more stuff. And, and actually mitigating me, you lot might be different, but mitigating me is actually quite hard. And I don't like people getting in my way or telling me what to do uh, uh, either. And I don't like false prophets who tell me that things are going to go bad if I continue. So actually, my behaviour is one of the very difficult things in, in, in all of this. And you know, finding a reward centre in my brain for a V8 Range Rover and tickling that without the environmental and resource consequences might be quite hard. And getting me to accept or give permission to policy change. Or, or accept that there should be higher prices and things like that. And I, I actually think there's a huge area of research that we really need to work on, maybe very difficult. Um, but I would suggest that that may be underplayed at the moment. And the third is policy. 
So whatever it might be, regulatory policy, carbon markets, the policies that might change my behavior. Um, and actually, I think it's, they're, they're strands, but actually they interconnect. Because you, know, you begin to think about how the energy system needs to evolve to be low carbon. You begin to think then about what the behavioral responses may need to be and the policy structures that will get us there. And one of the questions for us, I think, is whether we can actually create the interfaces of, uh, uh, among those different disciplines as well as they need to be connected. So that was my second point. And then the third point, am I all right for a minute? I've, done. I've got a minute. Right. The, the, the point about um, the, the collaboration. Um, and, and although I think it's, we're, we're talking about academia and industry here, I, I mean, there's government, uh, um, there's, Nick, there's your organization, there are all sorts of, society itself, but representatives of society, and I think they all need to find a way of collaborating on this in order to make it uh, effective, to get them the decision-making right, to get the permission, to get the communication and the engagement. Uh, I, as it happens, I'm a trustee of the Science Museum, and I actually think the Science Museum, for example, has a role to play in helping frame that public debate about the challenges of sustainability and climate change. The Science Museum has a, a gallery on, on, on climate change, so you know, that communication and engagement. And, and the forms of collaboration, and I think of two or three institutions that seem relevant to this. One, the Grantham Institute, which is based both here and at Imperial. Imperial, Brian, I hope I don't get this wrong, but I mean, it's actually more technical here, more economic. Um, a very broad program of work, and I think the connections between those things, between those two institutions, are, are, are really important. The Carbon Trust um, that I work for now, for example, there's something called the Offshore Wind Accelerator, where you might think it's the turbines, well it is the turbines, but there's also the foundations on which these things sit, making them reliable and low cost, the electrical connections under the sea, again reliable and low cost and actually the siting of the turbines so you get maximum out of any wind availability and you don't get one turbine robbing another turbine of the available resource. So there's a whole range of areas of technology that uh, need to be worked on in order to bring those things down the cost of learning curve. The Carbon Trust is a kind of honest broker among a whole lot of parties involved in that. So I think Strathclyde that does quite a lot of work on, on wind energy, it's involved. And there are half a dozen of the major wind operators who want to invest there that are involved as well. So those so sorts of collaborations seem quite important to me. Um, uh, another one uh, example is the Energy Technologies Institute, of which you might have heard, where it's 50% government funded and 50% funded by six companies, BP, Shell, and Rolls-Royce, and Caterpillar, and EDF, and, uh, and, and E.ON. And there, um, again, they, they, they put the funding in and they develop a work program for low carbon electricity and they go out to the academic center, but also small businesses and large businesses in order to develop and prove up and uh, accelerate the deployment of, of those uh, technologies. Um, I think what's crucial here, um, also I, I'd advocate, is a, a kind of a plan for the energy system. Um, so I think we need to know how our energy system stands in the UK, for example, today. The sort of energy system we're likely to need by mid-century, the sorts of technologies available over these horizons and how we would want it to evolve, because that begins to inform where we should deploy the research. I think it's especially important for the next 20 or 30 years, although you're probably and rightly saying to yourselves, yeah, but we've got to be careful. If we overplan this, of course, it becomes a bit like God's plan. Um, so we, you know, Soviet planning, and you dictate far too much, and you're too specific. So option management, and, and also keeping a very open mind on the things that may come through, and promoting the, th the fundamental research is, is really important too.
I think that I'll stop there. The only thing, final thing I want to say is, you know, in all of this, should we be daunted or should we be invigorated? Um, and I suggest we better be daunted by the dangers, but we'd be much more likely to get it right if we're invigorated by the opportunities it creates for ourselves as individuals and for companies and for countries if we focus also on what our comparative advantages are. Thanks. Thank you very much. For our second speaker, we have Nick Maybe, who's Chief Executive and Founder Director of E3G. Because I'm doing just-in-time speech writing, I'm going to tailor, and I dovetail perfectly with what you just said, because I wrote it as you said it. Um, but actually, there's, a, there's an awful lot of good overlap. Um, my name is Nick Maybe. I work for E3G, which is a non-profit organisation that works across Europe and in the US and China and a few places on this. But, um, but really, I actually thought I'd start off by saying where I've come from, because it's, it's quite relevant to here. Um, I started off life in industry trying to build wind turbines, ended up building Sizewell B, a bit of it anyway. Because there was nobody who built wind turbines in this country when I was a lad coming out of university. And so I went to, to academia to try and find out why by becoming an economist. I did every type of modeling, macro, micro, anything. That didn't work, so I became chief economist at WWF and tried to lobby my way in from the outside. I eventually got snapped up by the foreign office and the prime minister's office. So I went on the inside to find out how decisions were made and uh, then got ejected off the end of Tony Blair and set up E3G. Um, it's been a journey to find out why they wouldn't let me build wind turbines. And that's what this is based, <laughs> this is what it's based on. The answer is I should have been younger is the answer, I think. But uh, it was a journey through kind of economics, policy design, politics. And now we work on a kind of systemic combination of the three. Because our takeaway, and I think it was what James said, is we think to meet the climate change challenge and the broader sustainability challenge, we need to completely redefine the operating system by which we make and implement decisions in society. And that is a, it's everything at once job, and it's against the clock, which is quite hard work. Um, it's unlike lots of other problems. If we don't get it right in time, then we kind of lose the chance to get it right at all. It's not like poverty reduction. Um, and it's built, I mean, Mark, on insights, I to say, hopefully, are built on a proud history of failing to get my point across as an academic and as a policy advisor and as a political advisor. Um, not because they weren't listening, because I wasn't saying the right useful thing. And I think it comes down to it, those of us who claim to thought lead or do academia and stuff, don't complain if the politicians don't listen. Become a politician. If it's that easy, you become a politician. Okay. Work out what they need to hear and how you get it in their heads. And actually, it's not spin. It's about a really complicated understanding of what a practical person trying to change the real world needs to know to make a decision where their career is on the line. So when they make a decision, they get fired if it doesn't work. You don't. Write a policy paper that's wrong, you don't get fired. So again, understand the psychology of change as a core part of what you're doing as well as the academics. And I'm going to go through, I've got three sections because one always has to have three sections. But mine are the past, present and future. So I'll go. Um, in the past, I want to go talk about a couple of areas where academic research has been incredibly important for what I do and what I've done. Then talk about some of the present issues where academia and other people are helping or not helping solve problems. And then talk about some of the real future areas that I think are building up and stressing our ability to make good decisions inside our systems. Um, and backing James' point, we often say climate change, everybody kept on thinking it was easy to solve but expensive because that model is actually not as cheap to solve, but it's really hard. It's hard because we're really bad at changing how we operate as societies, especially at a global level. We've never even tried to do really that as a task. 
and that's why we need to think systematically and academia is a core part of thinking. You can't just muddle through. I often do a talk called Why Muddling Through Won't Do because that's the main role of practitioners. They need you to think systemically because their mode of thinking will not solve this problem. It cannot at a deep level. So in the past, and it hasn't been mentioned, but the climate science has been the bedrock of every piece of action going forward. It swept, or, or you may say the social science of climate change, but actually it's the hard climate science that has driven politicians. And before Copenhagen, there was a process of putting climate scientists in front of every global leader, looking them in the eyes and telling them what the climate science really said. And it wasn't so much what they were saying, it was the fear which we could get on the look of senior scientists when they talked about the real impacts, which could never come across a PowerPoint presentation. So again, important, the authority of really good science, and it doesn't it can mean social science too, incredibly important. Um, the opposite extent has been economics, probably the, the biggest drag on action um, of all the disciplines going forward. Um, you say macroeconomists, at the macro level, this idea that the economy is in equilibrium might be a nice... Um, assumption for doing mathematical models and making the equations turn out easily but it's been an incredible stop on action because it's, there's been every finance ministry thinks that anything you do on climate change costs money which is just rubbish no matter how much empirical evidence has been in the end they, that's they've born that in their first year course on, on general equilibrium and the power of that idea and the power of that cadre of professionals is one of the biggest stops on climate change today I'm lobbying against that line in the European Council in, in the range of the stimulus packages but on the micro level, they get a lot of hassle. The micro level has been equally bad. I once was a firm believer that emissions trading systems would change investment patterns. I had no evidence for that, but I'd done the same course as everybody else had done. I'd read the research. I was a leading researcher, I'd even say at the time, in the 90s. We didn't know what we were talking about. We'd never done any serious work on how investment decisions were made by companies, how decisions on technology were made, how prices drove markets. Just because markets produce prices, doesn't mean setting prices drives markets in the same way. That's a mistake of complexity, understanding complex systems. And so we found out we built emissions trading systems, they didn't do what we thought they would do. So we tried them again, they didn't do what we did that time. And now we're learning to actually understand the system better, so we understand how prices affect markets and vice versa. It was a failure of an academic system to ask really rigorous, serious questions. The good side was the technology policy people were sitting there talking about learning curves and developing learning curve empirics and that's been incredibly important for winning the debate. A silent little group and the, and the other group that helped us win in the recent times has been the behavioural economists and the behavioural psychologists and the, and the marketeers. The, and that, and there is a voracious appetite in decision makers to find out how real people operate and design policies around them and they have been incredibly influential um, in some ways that they have been rather than taking on and beating the economists view of people they've just gone around them and, and won that game. So it's been very interesting those two sides. So that's the past, interesting mixture of positives and negatives. Um, the present, we've got a whole lot of new challenges going forward, and James really, they're actually about how to make decisions. They're about how to bring all this really complicated knowledge we have to make decisions. Because it says it's easy to say we must get options in. You try working in a real decision-making system to do option values, it's virtually impossible. But that's why we need to really have people coming together to do better decision support around issues. And at the science level, we've actually been very bad in science at communicating the most extreme parts of climate change and actually building scientific systems that monitor tipping points and extreme system events. And I work with security actors who are very good at that because they get paid to find worst case scenarios. And we're trying to bring in the way they look at worst cases into general decision making because general decision making is very bad at its averages. And scientists are very bad at talking about worst cases too because that's not how they think about it. So it's all about how different cultures and different groups use uncertainty 
and calculate it and move it forward. Again, it's quite deep stuff. It requires quite a deep, you know, we build a lot, we draw a lot out of academic literature on this. Um, but it's academic literature quite in the theoretical space, but it's actually very practical on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, finance and risk. We've been involved in building a green investment bank in this country to overcome a problem that shouldn't exist because financial markets are perfect. If there's a profit opportunity, people will invest. I get, after 2008, I still get people saying that to me who are chief economists in government. Businesses handle uncertainty really well, they tell me. Where is it, 2012? Um, so we've had a huge issue of trying to understand how finance markets really work. Um, to be honest, hasn't drawn much on academics. It's been gone on talking to finance markets. But there's a huge lot to go forward in that. So doing that in China, where we're now doing it, and doing other countries, how do you look at imperfect finance markets? How do you look at how markets change? We're trying to drive markets very fast. They don't want to move that fast. It's creative destruction. It's actually a lot of areas where how much waste is enough? So we just incentivize Philips to build lots of factories to produce compact fluorescents. We'd quite like them to swap those for LEDs now. But their factory's got another 20 years of economic life. They were the good guys, and we're trying to put them out of business, but they make LEDs too. So you try and work out what that means as a policy. What's a good decision in terms of drive? That's what driving things fast means. It means to become obsolescence before your people earn profit on them. So what's the right incentive? How much is overpaying? How much is underpaying? Which is what the Treasury will want to know. That, all those areas require a lot of deep research into how economic systems really work, really turn over capital, really turn over ideas. Because at the moment, people are saying, if we waste one bit of capital, retire one thing before the end of its economic life, it's bad policy. And that can't be true, because that's not what the real world is like. We have to hold ourselves to good policy based on the reality. And it's back to this issue. I don't think the plan A will work, with, though I work a lot on CCS. Um, but I think it's a nice story time to tell existing decision makers of something they can feel comfortable with. But I don't know what plan B is, because disruptive technologies and changes that are going to actually win this, or fail to, aren't there. But it's very hard to convince a decision maker to say, we're going to go this direction, but then we don't know what's going to happen. And all the companies you talk to are going to be replaced by other companies. Now, you might find, think that's exciting, but I can bet you somebody's job is about keeping the lights on. does not find it exciting to not know who's going to keep the lights on in 10 years' time. Um, okay. And that leads me to the future, which is all about these issues, about beyond making good option choices now, thinking about how science systems change. It's really need getting the information to motivate and drive remorse to see that change. This isn't about pushing a ball to the top of a hill and letting it roll down under its own momentum. Implicit theory of change, lots of people have about climate change. It's more about going up a mountain, you push up another step, and then you get a plateau and you push up another step. Um, so, example, European grid. We're doing a lot of work on the European grid. What's a good European grid? And people say, well, it's this, that, the other. Well, design one for nuclear, design one for CCS heavy, design one for renewables, you get a different grid. Oh, but we're not going to do CCS and um, nuclear. People say, we'll just do renewables. Okay, are you designing a grid for centralised solar, decentralised solar, lots of offshore wind, lots of onshore wind, lots of biomass, lots of geothermal? Oh, they're in different places. What's a good decision? Who does it? No, no, we're just going to use solar in the south and wind in the north. It simplifies it. Okay, when are you going to build those? Because to build the wind in the north before the solar's in the south, it doesn't work but we don't control both ends of this game. It's not that simple to draw these pictures on maps and have here. How do I do that? Simple, sounds like a simple question to start with. Actually, when you get to break it into a set of decisions, it's very difficult. So option value of investment. How does value form dynamically? How does it emerge over time? If it doesn't come where you need it, how do you compensate losers and match winners? All those wonderful things. Um, how is the high carbon system going to unravel? The current, we've got 600 to 1,000 parts of a million of carbon listed on the World Stock Exchanges. When we stop that being burnt, how's that going to unravel? 
One way is the gas companies will be looking to see if they rebuild the gas pipelines. It's not going to be the coal mines that close down, it'll be the new railway they build to the coal mines that won't be built. So how does that unravel? It won't be orderly, it won't be nice and simple. Um, that's going to scare people. And the last one is on around resilience. We talk a lot about the impacts of climate change. We have a very bad idea of what it's going to do to, do to countries and how it's going to change them, social systems, security systems, um, so that people can actually grip this to say, I don't want this, therefore I'm prepared to do the hard things I need to avoid it and balance that risk and understand it beyond the climate change people who currently get it to a broader set of people in critical infrastructure, security systems. We're scratching the surface of how to do that analytically, um, but it's a huge error and it's certainly you could attack it with an analysis, but at the moment we're not seeing the investment. And my last one is one of the critical things we have is that investment in science is not being driven by policymakers enough, to be honest. To be honest, academics set their own agendas a bit too much, because a lot of what I'm talking about is very difficult, applied, academically level things, but it's about solving decision support problems and things that aren't necessarily the things that would get you journal articles. And I don't know, there's this gap between between the current scientific funding and academic funding and decision maker, which isn't being filled, and I've seen this for 20 years, but the more difficult in investing good information in the science, the more we need people to translate that into decision support tools and methods. That is not a trivial activity, but actually the investment in that bit of it is very weak. You know, and that's one of the, so there's no point building up more and more great data if we can't actually get it into decision making. Our final speaker is Juliet Davenport, who is the founder and CEO of Good Energy. Thank you. Cheers, thanks. Sorry to that. You don't have that light in your eye, Julie. And um, where I come from, because it's kind of almost the opposite of Nick's, actually, I think. I started off life, um, I got interested in climate change because I studied physics, and I was very bored with solid state physics because I wasn't very good at it, probably more than anything else. And um, climate, uh, atmospheric physics seemed very interesting. One, because we just had the 1987 storm, um, where Mr. Fish, if anybody remembers him, got it wrong. And understanding why people get things wrong is almost as interesting as understanding why people get things right. Um, I then decided I needed to get into the energy sector, so I ended up doing economics um, because physics isn't great in terms of understanding the markets and actually what underpins, since energy underpins most of our economic systems in the world. Um, I was very, very lucky to go to the European Commission and end up in government in the European Commission, um, working on all technologies, not, not just renewables, which is where I've ended up. Um, and what was really interesting about working in government was is that you saw some great input and some very good thinking, but the speed was just unbelievably slow. And the practical knowledge of actually how markets work was absent. So you had this kind of very high level political debate and economic debate, but actually what that meant in reality in terms of what that might turn into the future was very unclear. Um, and so I came back to the UK and went to a debate in the House of Commons, which depressed me beyond all belief, um, as it was meant to be about new energy technologies, future ideas, and it de descended into a political argument about nuclear power versus coal miners. Um, and so even back, the sort of, I think that was in the early 90s, that the sort of government was completely blinkered to the idea that potentially we might need to change 
the way we manage our energy system. Um, and so this is where I ended up setting up a company, Good Energy. Um, we're an electricity supply company in the UK. I would say the electricity supply markets are very complex in the UK. Often as here today, they may back me up on that. It's a very complex market to operate in. And actually understanding the practicalities of operating this market really gives you a very good idea of when policy change, how that affects what you're doing. We specifically set up a 100% renewable electricity company to make our lives difficult. Um, and this market makes it very difficult to be a 100% renewable electricity company. But understanding the impacts on us as a, as a small company gives us a very good idea is if you want to expand the amount of renewables in the UK, what the practical issues in terms of policy is. Um, we now have around 30,000 customers. We actually have around 35,000 small generators. So we've suddenly transformed our, uh, our base in that we're almost at a one-to-one -one relationship between the number of generators that we have and the number of supply customers we have. And actually this turns the idea of the classic energy market, large centralised systems, on its head. And it's really kind of trying to challenge. That's what we do. We try and challenge the status quo. Is are large centralised power systems the best way to go? Is this the best way of delivering security supply in the long term in the UK? And actually that's what the company is about. The company is about challenging policy. Does it deliver what we need in terms of climate change? Um, delivering a product to consumers, and so we get the consumer element in terms of climate change, how interested they are. Um, and providing a marketplace for smaller decentralised energy generators, um, looking to create security within the UK energy system. And that, that's, that was kind of my history, and that's what the company does. Um, and so my, my history, I, I started off very interested in climate change research, absolutely key to kicking off this market. I would completely agree with Nick. Scientists are awful at communicating. Sorry, apologies. <laughs> some notable exceptions, but, but, but I remember going to a debate on, on climate change, and there was a couple of journalists in the audience, and some very, very good scientists who were looking at climate change. And they were discussing about these lines that were literally millimetres apart, and they were having this massive argument about this. And the, and the journalist took away, scientists can't agree to it, therefore it's not happening. And of course, that's not what was going on. They agreed that the general line was going in that direction. They just disagreed on the amount the line was. And I think this is a whole idea of uncertainty related to... I remember when I came across a policymaker in Brussels who said to me, oh, well, if it's not 100% proven, it's not correct. It's like nothing in science is ever 100% proven. This is something that actually a lot of misconceptions, and I'm sure as economists, you'll realise that when you do a model, it isn't 100% correct. Or am I wrong? <laughs> so science is exactly the same and I think this is one thing we always forget we always look to scientists as having a perfect answer if they don't have a perfect answer then they obviously don't know what they're talking about and I think this is so, so a wider sense of understanding it's not just about the research it's actually how the research is presented and debated in a wider public sense and uh, I'm just going to kind of split the area of how we interact or how I see interaction between industry and research into kind of three key areas one is a kind of PR external relations piece, which is about policy influence and public, public influence. Another is about commercial strategy, working out whether something's actually going to work and can you make money, money out of it. And the final one is about consumer research. And I kind of see those as three separate strands as a business of how we interplay with either commissioning our own research or using other people's research. And I think really that the whole external relations piece is about um, actually appealing to the people you're already working with. So writing research, getting research done that reinforces you as an organisation 
in terms of your wider public, whoever that is, your stakeholders. It is also very important, particularly in this industry, in terms of government strategy. Um, what we find, and uh, I'm probably going to be very unpopular here again, is when I go and talk to certain officials about the economics of this market, I find the practical knowledge is unbelievably lacking. And I think that mainly is related to the fact that we have led this market, the UK electricity market is what I'm talking about, with six big players for so long, we cannot conceive of a market that doesn't look like and therefore, if we have to conceive of a market that doesn't look like that, um, it, it breaks down all the policy changes that we're trying to do, and we really don't want to think about that. And, and, and this, is, this is my biggest issue currently that I am battling with when I go and talk to the officials, and they tell me, oh, well, that won't happen, and I go, on what basis? And then it goes blank. So the lack of research actually on some of these very major policy changes we're doing in terms of the true impacts on things like liquidity, on credit, on all these areas that, that, that aren't just about price is, is, is astounding, I would suggest, and um, a, a real lack. So actually, organisations like ours try and get involved to write forms of academic papers, work with government, and work with academic organisations to try and bring this in. And one of the people who work, I work very closely with someone called Catherine Mitchell, um, based at Exeter on Renewables, who's a great spokesman for this area and, and very pragmatic. Um, and actually, we're looking to try and engage with more academics to actually say more in public around these areas because I don't think we have an academic voice out there enough talking about, as independents, talking about what's happening in terms of the electricity market reform or the retail market reform and the implications of some of these very big policy changes in the UK. Um, I think that in this commercial and strategic part, that, that's very different. That's, you're really looking at specific technologies, you're looking at a lot of data analysis in terms of commercially, does this add up? And actually, quite often we do that internally. We don't tend to do that with research bodies. Um, maybe we should try and get more research bodies involved, but we have quite a lot of good economists and, and financial analysts in-house. Um, a lot of that is related to, if I implement a new technology, what is that going to look like? Currently, I'm looking at a project where I'd like to look at, for example, bringing wind, solar, and a battery technology on site to see whether I can maximise the economic value out of those three technologies in one space through load management. And that is something that I think there's a real possibility in going forwards, maximising out of the current market structure. Um, so those, those are the kind of things I see in that space. And that, that, that detail, getting into that detail, one of the things we did two years ago was run a renewable scenario for the UK, looking at 100% renewable for the UK, which is, in a resource sense, completely possible. And the reason we did that, one, because everybody kept telling me it was not possible, which is quite annoying, um, but two, I think we don't think out of the box enough. I think we take what we've got right now and go, well, we'll take a small step forward and just do that. I think actually what we have to do is take it to the extremes. So maybe run a completely CCS example or a complete nuclear example. I'd love to see a complete nuclear example. Um, and a complete renewables example. And basically say, well, what needs to change in the system to be able to manage that situation? Because, again, it's all possible. It's just about taking it to an extreme and really thinking it through. And I think that's, in a sense, where support of academic research could really play a role. I don't think we're seeing enough of that really stretching an economic system away from where it is. The number of people I hear saying, no, we have to do it this way. And I'm just going, well, do we? Of course, we don't have to do it any way we don't want to. It just really depends what your paradigms are. And I think we need to see some significant paradigm shifts. 
Um, I think the last part, and I think Nick mentioned it already, I think the consumer research is incredibly important. I think we've completely missed that in the energy sector. I think government runs away from consumer research in terms of uptake of demand side management, uptake of energy efficiency. And they say, oh, the consumers will never do anything, let's forget them, basically. And that, that, that's, and I think what we find is, we did a really interesting piece recently, which was about, um, we've got 35,000 small generators, most of them solar PV roofs, and what behavioural change you got as a result of installing this technology. So technology influenced behavioural change, and it was massive. Around 60% reduced their energy consumption as a result of installing PV. Because what they could see, and, they, and about, I think it was about 45% changed their behavioural pattern as well. Because what they could see is by the fact that they were generating their own power, they would actually try and use less that they would import from the grid and use more of what they're using on site. And this was a really, it was a kind of unforeseen circumstance. We guessed that might happen, so we actually set our margins in a very different way. I'm not sure the large players have actually seen that yet, but it will be reducing their margins significantly if people start self-generating. So it's a whole new area in terms of how business models are working and consumers interface with that. And I think that that is a really interesting area and we continue to try and do some work around that and what's likely to be happening in the future. Um, I would agree in terms of various parts of government who don't really want to listen in terms of how economic systems work. Um, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an induction in the Treasury where they get inducted after two weeks not listening to anybody and not believing anybody at all. Um, I think it's... It is time to really consider economic systems properly as opposed to just academic pieces and taking it from the theoretical academic analysis to proper research and proper understanding of how markets work, including liquidity, credit, and other unseen pieces that nobody ever really takes into account, particularly in energy markets, which are so powerful. And then all the points that Nick was making about structural change in terms of manufacturing. Um, I've just been speaking, so somebody, uh, our next door neighbours rang us up and said they're really interested in talking about diamonds. That you know, sounds a little odd, I know. But um, the wire that you cut solar panels with has to be, um, you use a lot of glycol, I think, I think, and there's a lot of industrial pollution as a result in China currently, as a result of the solar industry. One of the things they're looking at is changing the way you put the wires, so you put diamonds on the wires, and actually exporting that to China, so you significantly can thin, make thinner film um, PV and you can reduce the pollution. And it's that kind of technological change and actually how those shifts are going to make that suddenly you may see significant reductions in PV panels. And actually that is then a game changer in terms of certain parts of the globe, in terms of how you produce your energy. Anyway, I wanted to leave that with you because it's kind of an industrial and theoretic, so theory sort of going into industrial process all in one. Um, but I suppose, having been an economist and, and a physicist, um, I think all those, all those areas are fantastic for learning the basics, but you have to take them out and look at practicality and look at what, what, where the models are broken, because actually understanding where the models are broken is where you'll find some really interesting answers. Thank you. Great insights there, thank you so much. Um, so now we'll open it out for a discussion. Um, like the previous session, if, if I can take the questions in threes, that would be wonderful. Questions. Yeah. 
Hi, uh, my name is Anya Nivrazel. I'm a Grantham Institute Fellow at the House of Commons Energy and Climate Change Committee. Um, and I wanted to ask a question about electricity market reform and whether you thought it was unfairly biased towards nuclear um, uh, over renewable. And do you think that the government should just be honest and give a subsidy if they want to give a subsidy? Um, and also, um, is it biased towards the big six? Okay, so uh, Hi, Maria Carvalho from the Grantham Research Institute here at, at the LSE. And you've talked about, um, actually this is for any three of you to answer, you've talked about working with academics in engaging with practical questions. And I was wondering in what ways you would envision that occurring. Now in the science area, there is a lot of teams that work together to actually do research, but um, in the social sciences, you tend to have individual academics working, working within research tanks. And yeah, you can get groups of people, but in terms of your own work, how would you engage with academic institutions to carry out more practical, sur maybe survey-based work or understanding how markets work? Thank you. Um, hello, my name is Andrea Varassi, SIE Global Politics here at LSE. I have a question, and which stems for your three interventions, and there seems to be an overarching problem uh, that involves both market and policy making. There seems to be a deeply rooted inability to think in the long term, in terms of long term action, and still talking about economic theory, as Keynes said, in the long term we're all dead. So perhaps that's one of the reasons. Uh, anyway, do you think that academic research can uh, play a key role in uh, helping the public, the consumers, policy makers, uh, CEOs, the industry, in thinking more in long term? Uh, because coming from uh, Jim Smith's intervention, uh, climate change is mostly a problem of droughts and floods. And this creates uh, economic problems that will increase, but only in the longer term, whereas the industry shows a tendency to think in the short term. Do you think that focusing economic research in explaining more clearly and coherently the long-term implications of climate change will help planning more feasible policies? Thank you. Okay. I feel like I'm <laughs> is an interesting piece of market um, reform. Um, I would say the, the key part from a renewables point of view to look at is something called the Contract for Difference Agreement, which was um, actually <coughs> suggested by one of the large renewable players, um, was jumped on by the nuclear players as seen as a way of um, getting nuclear away with no subsidy, which is the commitment of government. Um, in terms of the smaller end and, and the variable renewables, I think there are some unintended consequences as a result of potentially introducing a CFD. CFD gives government this idea that over time they can adjust the price so that there is not too much subsidy going as an automatic reduction mechanism. Um, the issue is that with the smaller end of the market where the liquidity is much less, actually what you're doing is reducing the value of the smaller generators to smaller suppliers to buy their output. And this is something that has not been thought through properly. 
and we think will have a significant impact on the number of new entrants coming into this market and the potential competition in this market, which from the retail market reform, which is the other big reform that's being pushed through, we think will counteract against that. So we think that the, the electricity market reform currently is a market reform for the big six. It adds complexity to the market, makes, it more, makes the risks much higher, and it makes market entry and long-term contracting much more difficult for smaller suppliers. So we think there are some serious... And I think there's a very good report out by... Is it PwC? I can't remember. There's a report this week on the CFD, which, if you want to read another opinion, I think is very good. And it, it puts a big down in terms of also the balance sheets. Who's going to take this on the balance sheet? Because government is refusing to. And therefore, I don't really want to underwrite a nuclear CFD on my balance sheet personally. It's, um, it's interesting because the, by intention, the answer was no. Um, uh, practically, if you want to support, there was, a, there was a worry when Ed Miliband announced it. I was in the meeting with a bunch of people saying, no one's going to invest, Ed, you better do something, because no one trusts you, um, and no one thinks the ETS is going to work. And um, they were quite shocked, because that was like, academics and industry and think tanks and environmentalists all saying the same thing. We didn't necessarily have the same solution, but we all had the same problem. We all needed investment. And if you want to subsidise offshore wind, you're going to produce something that could at an extreme be used to subsidise nuclear, though they're actually finding it really hard to use the yeah. system to subsidise nuclear, and in fact, it'll probably end up being done at the beginning outside EMR. So it's interesting that, that they've intended it to do it, but it's, it's very hard to shoehorn nuclear into this in a way that doesn't breach state tables, which is the other bit of legislation you have to look at. Um, and actually, a lot of the discussions we had around EMR was specifically not to build in the bias towards the big six. The current, the first design they came up with was really biased towards the big six, would have made it the big four, actually, or the big two, and then we would have nationalised them, basically, by making, making a regulatory utility. Um, so I think that's a fight to go down, and one of the reasons we work on the Green Investment Bank was to provide an avenue for capital to get into smaller companies, particularly in the kind of wind area, to get the, their investment off their balance sheets and into the bond markets and the asset markets so they could carry on investing, which would undermine, you know, undermine one of the advantages of the big company, would level the playing field in financing. We have to get the pricing level playing field right too. And then, that one thing is that the utilities are changing business model. Three years ago we said, your business model will change because when you take out price risk, you're going to be out of business. And they said, no, no, no. And now all of them are actually looking at different business models and actually project, being project developers, and actually we think the technology companies will become very big because they're much bigger. So actually, it's, it's, you know, whether we will do it right is always, but, but I think there is lots of things shifting. On working with academics, I think the fact that social scientists don't work in teams is one of their biggest problems. And that's why RAND and other people and think tanks are beating academics, hands down, because they work in multidisciplinary teams. Because I haven't seen how anybody can answer one of these questions. The question I've got is, um, what's the impact of long-term climate change and resource scarcity on security issues in the Sahel? That's a policy-relevant issue. You tell me a single person who can answer that question. It's a big team question. Um, and we haven't got half of the methods to actually deal with it. Um, what are the, how do I stress test a development plan at the moment talking to Turkey? How will you do in the world of low-carbon trade constraints, resource scarcity, when your major export plan? You, that means taking a macro model revising it, stressing it with lots of different areas. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a lot of intellect. But um, So we think there's a real problem with the structural issues that they, you, we don't get enough team work in academics to actually meet the size and scale of a problem out there. And um, the reason I left academia was I, I put in for a grant for a scientist plus economist macro model to actually do this. And I've got the answer back, no, we don't fund that stuff. It doesn't get research grade. You know, it doesn't get in the journals because it's too multidisciplinary. So I decided to get out at that point. 
Um, that's going to be long term thinking. <laughs> um, can I, I say a word on EMR? Is it tomorrow? I think that the um, there's a report coming from government. It's, it's, yeah, it's ambiguous. It's ambiguous. Are you already seeing it? No, no, it really is ambiguous. Oh, as to whether yeah, the EMR uh, is supposed to be coming out, out tomorrow. I, I, I guess there are two points uh, that I want to make. First of all, um, is this notion of launch aid for early stage technologies, and it's something I've been arguing uh, for a while that um, you know, as much as possible, we sh we should be using the market, getting a carbon price into the market. My goodness, if we'd only got the carbon price in 40 years ago, the unsound hand, hand of the market might have, have you know driven us. Uh, we'd be working on the technologies earlier, and this would be easier to do. But we didn't, and as Nick had said earlier, we're we're really uh, short of time now, and this is a problem that you can't muddle through, which is something I quite often said as well. There isn't a muddle through option here, so you actually you do have to solve it. And that's quite unusual, because usually you know, our frame of mind is, oh, well, it'll be better or worse, but we'll muddle through, we'll still be around. You do have to, uh, you do have to solve this one. So, and, and the thing that I've felt has been missing from government, explicit government policy, is the notion of launch aid. And launch aid is used, I mean, modern market economies do it, they do it in other sectors. And CCS, I think, is a good example where there is what's emerged effectively a launch aid package. Uh, in offshore wind, um, it's kind of there, but not quite. I mean, the rocks are, are a sense of, of, of launch aid. And the nuclear, of course, is this political statement, no public subsidy, whatever the word public might mean. And of course, against the uncertainties of the market and the certainties of the cost of the first nuclear plants, it's not surprising that people are, the, the potential investors a little bit hesitant to do that. The other thing that worries me, of course, is if you don't have the concept of launch aid, you might be seen as be prepared to write an open-ended subsidy. And it seems to me the, the risk of the rocks are that it's an open-ended subsidy. And if you come along and say, well, I'd love to build these next few gigawatts in the Dogger Bank, but now look at it, it's just more expensive. Could I now have two rocks or two and a half rocks? And you fold your arms and wait, you get two or two and a half rocks. And if your engineers learn that, uh, their incentive actually to find breakthrough solutions, nonetheless to get the better paddle, the better turbine, or whatever it might be to reduce the costs. It's not there anymore, and, and this is a reality of, of, of industries. I mean, if the pressure's on, guys, this doesn't happen unless we find a way of reducing the costs, then the stimulus to, to make it happen is there. If, on the other hand, someone's going to, don't worry, you'll get a subsidy, because we work whenever we say we can't do it, we get another subsidy. And the, the, the benefit of launch aid is it's curtailed in time and value. Uh, but it's enough to stimulate to see whether it works. And if it doesn't work, sorry, you know, we've tried everything we can. Now the other thing that's working better will take over. So I, I would strongly uh, advocate the government to be clearer about the launch aid phase and that that launch aid is, uh, is curtailed. The other thing I just wanted to, to say um, about this, though, because I, I think, Julia, you made a good point. There are other ways of doing this if it's all renewable. Um, or it's all nuclear, or it's all fossil. Although I don't think I would ever advocate taking it to, to that extreme. But it, it, that's in physics, that's in physics too. You push something to the extreme, you get some insights yeah. uh, about it. But actually, because we have to solve it, because we're short of time, we actually have to make some choices about how we're going to do it. And if we spend the next 10 years arguing that, no, there's a much better way, and we're still arguing that 10 years, we, the 10 years will have gone, and we, we still won't be, be doing it. And I think we've got to confront that. Yeah. So what are we going to do? I mean, there's a set of solutions that seem to me to work, albeit messy and ugly, and, and certainly won't be right for the long term. 
um, with all sorts of uh, misgivings, you implement them. Or you say, well, actually, if we don't do that, turn it all off, we can do it another way, uh, which, which may work. Um, and I, we're, I think we're at that sort of point, and all the discussion we'll be having here is, is almost at, at that point. There's some big, ugly stuff that's unappetizing that will probably get the job done. There's some other stuff that's much more attractive, but we don't know whether it'll get the job done. Uh, have we got the time to find out which of those works and, and to implement discover? I'm not sure we do, but it may be worth something that's you know, uh, discussing, discussing further, which brings you to your point about, uh, about the longer term. Um, getting back to what's in my visceral Darwinian instincts, I mean, I'm hardwired to react to immediate danger. I haven't been designed to react to distant threats. Uh, and that's built in, and, and since politics tends to respond to my visceral Darwinian instincts, I think it's going to be quite, quite hard. And that's why it's so important, I think, that the academics and, and industry and people in think tanks really can put the concentrated effort into this and come up with a set of ideas that are going to deliver and constantly influence the politicians to do the right research, to get the market incentives organized. And you know, here's someone who used to be in industry, and I said it then, regulatory environment, we need more regulation. I must get upset the head of the stock exchange by saying we need more regulation. And yet the stock exchange is highly regulated. I mean, it's almost a feature of a market. A market is something that's regulated. So regulating ourselves to lower carbon economy, I think, would be a good thing to do as well. But because, you know, emotionally, uh, we're not set up or prepared to do that, I think the importance of the sort of collaboration among all parties concerned uh, is, is really important. Do that, coupled to the sort of supporting communication that's been talked about as well. Can I just point? So, one of the, the mode of, of what you study, I think, it's quite interesting. Lots of academics who think they do policy do policy. A lot of what policymakers do is build institutions, create norms, and structure conversations. And actually, if you're looking at actually, there are groups who do long-term thinking. The visceral gut feeling of someone who does security is looking for long-term threat because they're incentivized inside the culture of security analysis to look for. Um, actually, what we didn't do for 9-11, we didn't look for the airplanes sitting in the towers, we were looking at bomb. There's a failure of imagination, but there's a big culture there. And then they invest for 15 to 20 years before you get a plane that can fly and deal with the threat you identify. And they're backed by democratic politicians who spend a large amount of their public budget on that. So inside that world, which is part culture, part analysis, part politics, part conversation, you've created structures and institutions that can invest for the long term. And let's say you can say our public health institutions have a similar structure. We've not got those yet in this area for sustainability challenges, but that is analyzable and understandable, but it's not if you look at the unit of policy, but it is if you look at the ecosystem. And the Climate Change Committee is a good example of a piece of constitutional change to enable our society to make longer-term decisions. That's a really powerful, but if you think it's policy, it's not a policy, it's a fundamental constitutional change about the power of parliament versus the elected executive of the day. But I don't see political scientists analyzing it that way. You know, but, but unless you do, how do we understand how we build societies that can make decisions? That's what I mean by changing the operating system, not the individual policy, but the underlying structure in which decisions are made, because those things change quite quickly with technology, the underlying pieces don't. Um, but I'm not sure whose job it is to analyse that. I don't know if the people out there feel it's their job, but I'm not sure who's doing that work. So we just take it up as we go along. <laughs> just, just picking up on the, the last point, more specifically then, would you all agree that then the case for the long-term risks of climate has been made and now it's moving on, or do you think that, is no. that something that needs to be reinforced? I think it continues to be reinforced because um, you, you continue to challenge, um, the, the consumer press continue to continue to challenge it. And 
I think you cannot get away. You have to continue to reinforce it and understand it. If you just just let it go now, everybody go. Oh well, they've stopped talking about it. Maybe it stopped happening. Um, and, and that genuinely is the way people will think about it. Um, so no, there's no way you can stop stop looking at it and stop challenging it. And this is why I use the analogy of deep. Is it or is this a problem where you push the ball to the top of the hill and it rolls down under its own gravity? Think in your mind, how do you think we solve it? What is the mode of change? Or we, every time, so the next bit of change, we get to the harder piece, we have to remake the case twice as hard because the next set of changes we're going to make fundamentally change people's lives a lot more. Yeah. Now, it's some mixture of those two. It makes an enormous difference to your expectations of how much mobilisation of society you need to do, the depth of change, what you are on that. But most of us, including the most learned, have, it's an implicit model they've never actually ask and criticise and assess what actually changes that, what would change that tipping point in the social system towards that. And that uh, but it's the most fundamental piece and you know, we have, I have arguments with senior people that we have very different views and therefore think we have to mobilise very differently for the next climate treaty negotiations, for example, because I think it's harder and they think it's easier <laughs> and therefore they're not focusing enough on, I think, the scientific case, which I think has, been, has gone backwards enormously since Copenhagen, if you look at Google. Um, Google Tracker, really worth putting climate, look at the shape of the graph. Um, it's gone down by around two thirds in terms of people searching on climate. But again, I think that's, that's something you can interrogate. And look at past examples, we're so ahistorical. So it's like no one's tried to do change before in society, we're all making it up from nothing. That just frustrates the hell out of me because I actually, again, I should have put in, I learn more from history, history of the cooperative movement, social mobilisation, labour mobilisation, than on this and virtually everything else. Good social science, good social history, really granular stuff about how people made movements and changed minds and made policy for real. Um, because people don't write that in the present, they only write <laughs> often about the past. I think the other point related to that is once you put in these uh, the new constitutional infrastructural changes, of which I think CCC is a, an extremely good example, as you make it. Once you've done it, you don't need to feel that's a job done. You have to constantly defend it. Mm. Uh, and, and there, it'll, it'll have to be defended because there's always a, a, a competition over available resources and people are going to be questioning whether there's a better priority for money with the best will in the world. And then there'll be other folks who simply don't believe in any of this. They don't believe in it from a sort of deeply philosophical point of view about the role of government or don't believe in it because Climate change and what is or is shallow? Yeah. Well, okay. All right. Shallow, but I mean, deeply held. And will you know attack it with all the political force that they possibly can, and therefore, you know, once you put these institutional changes in place, you have to be sure that they're available, that they continue to be protected, and that that protection needs to be very well informed. Thank you. Should we take another three questions? Hi, uh, I'm Ralph Martin. I'm at the Business School of the Imperial College and also here at Grantham and at CP of the LSE. Um, and I'm an academic, I'm an economist even, so the worst kind apparently. Um, still, I'm, you know, I've been trying over recent years, what I'm trying to do is to say, and uh, which is something you haven't mentioned yet, is uh, there are a lot of policies which we have right now already implemented. And one thing we have to do as well is see what works. What, you know, what is the outcome of these policies? In many cases, we don't know exactly what the outcome is. You know, it's not quite clear whether the emissions trading system has actually reduced any emissions, right? It's very hard to figure out because a lot of things are happening like the economic crisis and so on and so forth. So that's the kind of stuff I'm trying to do. 
So one difficulty I am having there sometimes is, is the following, and, and James will know this story very well. You know, there, there's, there's an institution which is called the Carbon Trust, which does a lot of climate change work in this country, and that might be great work, but we're not quite sure how much the effect really is. So I've one of the best databases in the country to actually assess this. I have you know, data on, on energy consumption of all companies in the country, not only the ones who come to the Carbon Trust, uh, but also the ones who don't. And I have this data before they come to the Carbon Trust and after, whereas the Carbon Trust has, at best, a kind of fuzzy snapshot of when they come. So since four years, I'm trying to get from the Carbon Trust nothing more than a table with actually the list of companies they have actually advised. And my response from the Carbon Trust for four years is that this is too much a management, too complicated for, in management terms to give you this list. And I'm really worried about the management of the Carbon Trust now. So I was wondering if, if uh, James could just enlighten us a bit what's going on there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my name is Zach Wilcox. I'm from the Think Tank Center for Cities, so I come from a different background here. Um, we all know that climate change is a global problem, which has very, you know, requires very local changes. But um, in the UK, uh, local government has um, a lot of responsibility, but not very much power or finances to do what they want to do. Um, you know, we, we talked about Leeds earlier with their um, mini Stern report, but they don't have a lot of scope to actually do a lot of things around it. So is there really still scope to work with local government to drive change, or does this have to be a national conversation um, and continue top-down uh, top uh, drive to change? Uh, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm Akhil Patel. Uh, I work at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Um, thank you very much for uh, really fascinating presentations. Um, I had one sort of smaller question, one slightly larger question. The first one for you, James, is um, um, EBRD is concerned with the development of markets in um, Central Europe, East Asia, not East Asia, sorry, Central Asia, and, and now North Africa. Um, and I think, I think one of our hopes for our sustainable energy initiative is that you know, we can, through our investments, demonstrate that markets operate in this area and then private capital will flow. I, I think perhaps, Nick, you, 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 some of what you said uh, might contradict that. Um, but I was quite interested in the sort of launch aid uh, that you talked about. And I mean, we're very concerned about uh, providing investments uh, to projects where um, there, you know, there is a subsidy, but we've, you know, we, because they're markets, we want subsidy to be time limited. And I think some of your launch aid uh, points might speak to that. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that, in terms of how you sort of structure it and how you sort of demonstrate and evaluate and so on. Um, the slightly bigger question. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Thanks. I'm, I'm gonna let you answer your question, so I'll give you some more time. Um, but I want to go, I, was, I, I had my EMR moment, um, I can get angry about EMR too, but I default to you, about local government. Um, when I worked in Prime Minister's Strategy Unit, I did a lot of different projects, including transport and energy and organised crime, um, apart from the last one, that one of the biggest issues about this country, how it underperformed relative to all other European countries, was the amount of centralisation. Number one issues on all of these issues, over-centralisation, back to constitutional changes which would make things better in this country, that was it. Why, whenever we try to approach number 10 and say it's a centralisation issue, that oh, but if we do that, we have to look at local taxes and look at Maggie. 
Local taxes is the third rail of politics in this country, and therefore, even though big society, localization, etc., they're localizing everything except the money. But the only thing that matters actually is the money, because if you did the money, everything else would flow. That's the evidence from the rest of Europe, places like Barcelona or elsewhere, but between the Treasury and the, the, the issues around local taxation that hasn't gone, gone through, um, which means we're stalling energy efficiency implementation, good one, uh, congestion. Though so many things we're stalling because we can't get the capacity at the right level where the granular work has to be done. And so we have over-centralised solutions that are really poor. So we're trying to make the best job we can do in a centralised way and work around some of those problems. But it is one, it's a systematic problem in this country, which is at the heart of lots of these things. Um, on the EBRD point, I think it's interesting, we spend a lot of time trying to make markets work. Um, just to challenge you on one thing, why, why do people say that markets don't have subsidies? If a subsidy is called government purchase, the defence market yeah. is driven by subsidies, so is the health market, so is the education market. They are markets for technologies, for services, for really high-tech things, but if, if government purchasing something is a subsidy, then they are completely subsidised, but they are sustainable because they meet a public good. If we were buying a public good called climate reduction, we can, and that's an increment on the price of electricity forever, whether that's expressed in a carbon price or a direct from budget subsidy, it doesn't matter. It's totally sustainable. That's not about markets and subsidies. That's not the right. Subsidies are not anti-market. They're in all markets, actually. And many of them are very bad subsidies, and many of them are quite useful subsidies. They buy public goods. The question is, is it a good subsidy or not? Does it buy a public good? Is it efficient? Is it driving the right behavior, etc.? Otherwise, it's market fundamentalism. I actually have a question back for you, because it's one of the ones the researchers here should be interested in. EBRD has been running work on energy efficiency markets in Eastern Europe since 89, pretty much, since its formation. Very good idea. It has yet to make a sustainable structure for business model for ESCOs, because it still has to subsidize them in its grant structure, we you know, to talk to you. Um, why is that? What do we not understand about sustainable markets? That we have something that looks economic, Everybody says in their models and techniques work, but we have yet to make really strong markets in energy saving companies. What are we doing on Because that's a, that's a really practical example for me of back to get what policies work, which I think is an incredibly important part of the discussion we need to get into. But that's an area where we think there's $50 to pick up all over, 50 euros everywhere, but we somehow businesses aren't making it their business. Not, not at the scale they should do. And what do we don't know? that we need to find out to solve that, because solving that is going to be pretty important for the rest of the world, obviously. North Africa being a good place, actually. Yeah. So, I, so I go quickly on local markets. I mean, I think what's quite interesting about local government is that you have to look at policy change and decentralising and make sure it's fit for purpose in terms of local government. Um, what we've actually seen under feed-in tariffs recently, which have been through their ups and downs, I have to say, I, I presented a paper about three years ago and how I thought Politic politically, feed and tariffs is a very risky policy. Um, I have to say, I think I was proved right. Um, the renewable obligation certificates are actually a much more stable mechanism currently um, in terms of a policy legislative. We're going to be, I'm going to be interested to see what fit CFD delivers in the future. But, but um, in terms of local government, we've seen that we work with about 138 social housing organisations who got involved in feed and tariffs. And that was it was because it was a policy that they could get involved with, they could see as an income flow and they could improve their housing stock. So it ticked various, it, it was an energy policy, but it ticked other policy boxes. And I think that if you really wanted, I don't think we'll ever get sort of local taxes yeah. in the UK, but what I think you could do and what you could move to is policy change that actually allows different organisations in. And I think that, 
Um, Green Deal is going to be difficult. I think it will take a couple of iterations before we get it right. There's no way we'll get it right first off because it's a really complex instrument. But I think if we can make it work for local housing um, and particularly local authorities, then I think it could be another powerful way that they could become to pay a much bigger role. And, and we're seeing areas like this of the Manchester area is, is, is working very closely with about, I think it's about um, 10 local authorities to really try and push into the energy sector and become a sort of player in the energy sector. And we think that's a really interesting move. And we could see local authorities, now the legislation's actually been removed that they can sell power because they were banned from selling power up till I can't remember what it was quite recently. Yeah. Um, so again, it's about making existing policy fit for purpose for local authority. And I think there's a lot of work that could go and, and basically go through a checklist of say what needs to change in existing policy. Uh, the, 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 I think I was going to make a similar point about local government, in particular when it comes to the uh, improving energy efficiency, the domestic housing stock, you know, the Green Deal, and things like that. And we say the consumer is irrational because the consumer won't make the obviously cost-beneficial investment in energy efficiency, and my reaction is uh, the consumer is never rational. Rationality is defined by what the consumer does. It's just their models are inferior. So when we find the consumers not doing what they thought they ought to do, then we better change our model rather and understand the consumer better. But it, it does. You, but part of the problem is confidence in the various actors who are providing finance or doing the work uh, or doing the, the initial survey. And I think local governments actually, if you, you can sort of draw a map, but, but well, if we want to make the houses more energy efficient, who's got to do the work, where's money coming from, who's got to do the service? And I think local governments can probably play a much more trusted role than some of the other institutions. And they have the potential for making a difference between success and failure here. I think that in Birmingham, you mentioned Manchester, and also in the northeast, they seem to be quite interested in, in doing that with some interesting ideas about how to make it work. I'll come to the carbon trust in a I won't, you won't let me forget. I know this point about launch aid and the EBRD. A, a couple of points. I mean, one, it, it stimulates the point about infrastructure. You know, generally, whether it's low carbon infrastructure, energy infrastructure, energy for any form of inf infrastructure. It looks. Was it Galbraith who said our destiny in, in a modern market economy and consumerism is to drive ever more wonderful cars over ever more potable roads? So I, actually, you know, reallocating resource away from the from consumerism into infrastructure is very very difficult, as as we can see. And, and seeing infrastructure as a stimulus to economic recovery seems to be very difficult as well. So this is a, a much more general problem. Uh, and you know, there isn't enough balance sheet capacity among the um, major investors for electricity, as we can see. Finding a means of enhancing that balance sheet capacity seems really important too. And, and there are some ideas about bringing the consumer in, essentially sort of um, aggregating the, the consumer's ability to take risk on electricity investment by creating some new institutions that, that can do that, that I, can, that I think are useful. So, I mean, it, I think it is reasonable that, that, that nations have the capacity to take an economic risk if they haven't already spent their formless budget, which sometimes they have anyway. But you need, you do, I think you do need to look to nations to underwrite some of these major infrastructure projects and bringing a consumer in in the process by finding more sophisticated than the government just writing a, a law that says they're going to do it. But, but I would distinguish between infrastructure investment and launch aid for new stage technologies. I mean, both may be relevant, um, but clearly you've reduced the risk if, by, if you go to the point of having demonstrated technologies to what it costs and what it, what it delivers. And launch aid was more about discovery of a variety of things about what it really costs and beginning to create the supply chain and beginning to get things down the, the supply curve. Um, 
And, and I would certainly want to use the private sector to do it. But a government can come along and say, I've got this about number of billions available for these number of gigawatts if we're talking about energy of this type of technology, and you invite bids, which is what's happening in carbon capture and storage. And you can say, well, I'd like to never do gas, or like, and there might be two or three different uh, elements of the technology that you want to test out. And there's some conditionality around that, uh, some criteria. Also, you've got to decide who gets the IP. Uh, and if, if a company has benefit from public funds in order to develop their own IP, should they retain the IP? I guess probably not. You know, that should become a public good. Equally, if the company having benefited from uh, public funds in order to launch this demo then finds they're making a 20% real return for the next 40 years, that sounds a bit unlike unreasonable as well. So again, you, you, you're, you're sort of time constraining something in a, in a commercial competition, but you want to make sure you don't do sort of collateral damage to the concept by over-rewarding. Uh, you need the right level of stimulus. Um, and, and there, as, as Nick said, the, the defense industry is a perfect place to look for it. I mean, so, I mean gas compressors, gas compressors, I mean, the, the, the great benefit we get out of gas compressors generally is the result of the investment that's been made through the military in the United States in, in particular. So, you know, whether it's the right thing, spin-offs can be, can, be, can be beneficial. On the Carbon Trust, you have asked me before, and I have gone to the Carbon Trust, and they had a more complicated answer than, than you had, so I'll give it another go. If it's only a list of companies, then that's not what they thought you were asking for, but anyway. I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try again. Only on on one point, I, I just want to just point out, to sometimes simple things matter, and they're about conversations between policy practitioners and academics and actually the, the ports of freedom, the pushing to extremes and reframing problems. So I sit on the government's um, advisory council on infrastructure and then my first meeting I said at the meeting being done, said, you said we've got you know, 200 billion to invest over the next five years, are you counting energy efficiency as infrastructure? And they looked at me and that's strange and went, well no, obviously, obviously not. I said, well why? And they said, well it's too small. <laughs> you look at investment we're planning for the next 20 years, it's around 300 billion actually in the housing stock and over us as the housing stock side, so it's quite big. Oh, it doesn't last. It's like, well, it's made of mostly steel and concrete and different types of materials, so it lasts quite a long time. And actually, it conditions the size of every other piece of infrastructure pretty much we're talking about. You're getting very excited about wires and pipes and everything else. The reason why? Because that's not what they call it. That's all. It's just because traditionally, yeah, you, the government concerned itself and got very sweated about security up until the point where it entered someone's premises, and after that, it was they could do anything they liked with it. And what a ridiculous thing to do when you're worried about security of supply and all these issues, um, to not consider that part of critical national infrastructure and analyse it and cost it and compare it. So the Treasury was prepared to pay real money for security by building grids and gas and interconnectors and storage, but it wanted efficiency for free because they had a cost curve that said it should come for free. So why well, ridiculous? Surely you should... Try, you know, buy the cheapest way of dealing with the issue, and if you can get it out of demand, so I get it. And so, again, but one of the problems was whenever government asked the question of consultancies and others, they asked it in their frame. We needed people to shift different frames and value the world in different lumps, and that's where independently funded, you know, it's really important because that's hard to do. It's hard to get paradigm shifting research out of the existing paradigm holders. And, and, and can I just add to that, just very briefly? Um, what, one of the things I think is really interesting is we're actually expecting individual householders to effectively make this investment. And we're actually not really thinking about the economic system that they're working in. 
So what are their long-term pricing signals? What pricing signals are we giving them? Well, at the moment, if you look at the retail energy markets, they're very volatile. And although people complain about energy prices being high, and probably they're the, I think they're the biggest single issue of a mortgage is for the individual householder now, if you have a mortgage, obviously. Um, and I think what's really interesting is that we haven't really asked those questions in terms of why haven't people invested in their homes to reduce the energy they use, because that is another form of infrastructure. And I think it's because the policymakers have forgotten that's infrastructure. And, and it's, it's, it's about asking these questions in a completely different way, from a completely different policy angle. Because if you just focus on energy, you get lost in kilowatt hours, or megawatts, or megawatt hours, or whatever. But you don't think about the practicality of it. And I think this is a really important um, sort of change that we need to take in terms of addressing this issue. You cannot just look at it from energy policy. You have to look at it from social science and economics. And just a small insertion, you just on this point, the Energy Technologies Institute that I mentioned, they've got a model called ESME, which I think you might have mm -hmm. heard of. And uh, I quite often look at it to try and bring myself up to date with things that are, and I say, well, what's the annual cost? And they come up with a number that I thought was a lot higher than I'd expected. And the answer was because it includes the infrastructure costs in all sorts, you know, the, the investment in vehicles, investment in buildings uh, for energy efficiency. Let's take a final two questions, something that will really stretch our speakers. <laughs> and we'll take one here on. I'm Neil Hurst. I'm Senior Fellow at uh, the Grantham Institute at Imperial College. I just wanted to uh, invite Nick to enlarge a little bit on uh, what he means when he says that uh, climate mitigation is cheap. I mean, is, is that, are you saying that it's cheap? or that it's sort of good value in relation to the benefits, which is, of course, what Nick Stern said, or are you saying that these estimates which are out there, which are mostly in the range of 1% to 3% of, of GDP, are you know, substantially wrong? Georgian does uh, working with international institutions uh, as an independent advisor. Uh, very short, uh, very simple question. Um, I'm not an expert on, on, on these things, but uh, one question that, that sort of um, worries investors or confuses them is the, the question of nuclear energy and probably confuses everybody else. So, simple question here what to do with nuclear energy in all this? Because we're short of time, let's, let's answer those, keep it to. A sound by each. Answer <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my question. Nuclear. Get out of what's So look to our website if you want to find out what to do with nuclear. And Tom Burke is eloquent on it. He's my co-director. Um, why? What do I mean by cheap? I mean that if an alien turned up at the UN FCCC summit in 2015 with heads of government and said, "Give me one and a half percent of global GDP and I'll solve climate change for you," they would pay on the nail that day. And if they said actually 3%, they'd probably pay on the nail that day. Most of us live in economies which spend 45 to 60% of GDP on public goods, of security and equity. If you, think, if you think the climate science is right, and most people do who run governments, it's a very good bargain if you could just hand over the money and get it done. But it's not that simple. I mean, think how much we spend on defence for not very well-defined enemies, to put it, to be charitable to national security strategy. Somebody somewhere in Russia might invade us somewhere in the future, so we better have a big army. I mean, it's, so it's not expensive. 
if it was easy, we would pay for that money and do it, but, it, but it's not. And, that, and those one or three percent is actually the difference between a very large amount of money on one thing called clean energy and saving a lot of money on something called efficiency. So the actual, and doing both of those at the same time is actually what the real hard bit is, actually. If it was just building clean energy, it would be much easier than it is. So that's why I call it cheap, really the core issue is cheap but hard, not, not the expense overall if we could get it. And it'll be cheaper than, as we say, anyway, I think it'll be less than that because the price will be more. But um, unfortunately, at the moment, we haven't had that offer. If we find an alien, that would be a good piece of research. Can I just for, for, uh, if, if I the the uh, I mean I agree with that I, I, I'd I'd say affordable and it's not you know one and a half percent rolls off the tongue quite easily and I think Nick uh, uh, um, not Nick but um, Dave Turner put it quite well in the CCC report that says so if we have to redeploy two percent of our productive capacity into mitigating carbon that means that the other goods and services we wanted to have by 2050 we're going to have to wait until 2051 to get those. Yeah, so because of that minor redeployment productive resource that's not making flat screen TVs, the one we want will come a year later. Um, and that sounds all right, and I think it is. I mean, so it's eminently affordable and it's cheaper than the, the, than the problem. The thing is, it is 700 billion uh, globally, which is not small potatoes, and you've got to spend it uh, wisely. And if you look at the ESME model, it actually comes up with 0.7% for GDP, provided you put 0.7% of UK GDP to make the UK's targets, which is a fairly attractive number. And, and, and actually, uh, but it says subject to doing all the right development work. You know, so if we do nothing, and there's quite nice curves, we're here, but if we do the development works, and there's some, you know, some quite nice curves where you can do an awful lot for not very much, and then it begins to go hyperbolic. Uh, um, but the other thing is it identifies if you make the wrong choices. So, I mean, it gets back to my point about these being long-term systems with a lot of inertia, and you start changing them some while before you get the outcomes. Um, um, certainly, uh, believe it or not, CCS and biomass and to some degree nuclear figure strongly in those models. Um, and if you take them out, it goes from 0.7% of GDP to something like 3 or 4% of GDP. And, and while these numbers aren't that bad, if it's, as Smith says, 2% on income tax to solve climate change front page of the Evening Standard, that's not so good, is it? So you, know, you start expressing it in different ways. What sounds eminently sensible and wise can be very, can be represented in a very damaging uh, politically, which is your point of leaving it beginning in a very politically damaging way. I happen to think that Julia is going to correct me in a moment, um, and Nick already has, that uh, nuclear is one of the three ugly solutions that, that, uh, that we do need to implement uh, for the next uh, phase of, uh, of investment in electricity generation. Okay, um, so I'm just going to answer the nuclear question. <laughs> I think the other questions have been done enough. Um, I, I'm going to paraphrase somebody else, actually, which is, which is rather convenient, maybe. Um, the Secretary of State recently at a speech I heard said that um, he felt it was uh, politically unsustainable to be subsidising a third-generation technology. Um, nuclear has been around since 1950. Um, it seems rather a shame that we still seem to be having to subsidise this technology. I would say you need to look to the economics of nuclear. I think we need to be much more open and much more transparent about the economics of nuclear. I think um, I, I, I worked on security supply for a brief period in, in the European Commission, and um, the only country that didn't submit any data on the cost of their technology was France. <laughs> so the only country where you could actually find out what was really going on was France. So um, I also think that we've just gone through a period where um, banks, we've ended up with individuals in this country taking onto their own personal balance sheet the debt of banks. Um, and I would suggest that 
whatever, whether you underwrite it or not, effectively each country, each individual in that country will be underwriting this technology. Because if it goes wrong, we will have to fix it. Whereas if a wind turbine goes wrong, nobody here would actually have to put their hands in their pockets and fork out taking it down. So I think that you really have to think about the transparency and the longevity of nuclear and really what the true costs of it that you can't see. Even the economics for me don't stack up, but even if you add the economics, it's the unseen economics that we've seen with the too big to fail syndrome. Could I, do you mind if I ask a question? Because um, there's quite a lot of, I mean, if you take the Mott McDonald report, which was for DEC, which was recently updated, nuclear looks quite good. I mean, I agree with it, as if maybe the capital investments are far higher. And then initially, they, 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 they will be. Uh, wind looks, offshore wind has to come an awful long down, way down the learning curve in order to be competitive and will still be at the high end. Gas plus CCS uh, looks fairly attractive. Solar PV and rooftops looks very expensive in this country. Uh, so, you know, the numbers at the moment, if you run the models, favour nuclear and CCS to some degree offshore wind. I guess my question is to you, would you be willing to, and I, I've read, I've seen what Tom Burke's been putting in the paper as well, I mean, I get to the point is, I just don't know. You know, there's lots of uncertainty, pros and cons. Would you be willing to invest in four or five gigawatts to find out? What's the answer? Yeah. Well, I think the Finnish have already done it. The Finnish have already done it, and they've been trying to build that plant. And they've been trying to build that plant, and it hasn't been commissioned yet. It's two years over date and over budget. So, I mean, so that's until what we can expect in the initial ones here as well. I'm sure of that. But the thing but is, but, but the, therefore, how much subsidy are you really going to have? It's still a moving feast, I would yeah. say. And I don't think we know the answer. Yeah, that's right. So we don't know the answer. So I'd say, let's invest in a few gigawatts of each of these and try and discover. It will all be better informed. It's a bit dangerous to say no to these now. If you're talking about risk management, one thing, because the issue, this is about... I'm less anti-nuclear than my but I've actually built some. So I kind of understand the social science of building nuclear, which is why I don't think you can build it fast enough and large enough without it going wrong security-wise or safety-wise. Just, you, know, you, you try building one, it's difficult. Um, it's that, it's deployment risk, and which is part of the financing risk and all the other pieces. And, there's, and there's one of the interesting framing issues, really classic, so there's three technologies. There's nuclear, CCS, and renewables. So yeah. I, last time I couldn't buy renewable. I had to buy one of several different technology sure. suites with several different generations. Like I can't actually buy a CCS, it's several different technology suites. Um, simplification, that's not the portfolio. The portfolio is the level down. And if you're looking at third gen nukes, I wouldn't stop research into advanced nukes because I'd like to keep that in my back pocket, to be honest. But I don't think I would invest deployment money Yes. Third because other people are doing that for other reasons, like the Chinese, and are quite worried about deployment rates too. I've got the option. I've got that option. I've bought the option of third gen use. Um, building a investing lot to build a supply chain to build out really fast as a global solution. I think I've got better investments, and I think that's where you know I say I would put more in CCS. I think existing coal is a big problem, and I've got to mop that up. But that's an argument we can have on the grounds of analysis and rationality thinking about dynamics of markets. Again, instead of sometimes it gets too theological, that's when I, like you, I kind of turn off. And it turns a lot of people off when we get theological as opposed to talking through, is it an answer to the problem we're asking? Um, if anybody wants to hear about how I was involved in nuclear decisions in the government, I'll tell you about what it's like to be asked a question and told what the answer is at the same time. <laughs> that's for a another day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much to, to all